screens for some church-wide announcements. February was an exciting month for our short-term missions teams in Guatemala and Haiti. Our teams worked with children and youth in schools and orphanages, as well as helping out in church services and Sunday schools. God answered our prayers and gave safety and favor to both teams as they served and loved on the people they encountered. Now, just this past Friday night, our medical team left for Haiti. They're in country right now, and they'll be back on the 17th. And we have another team preparing to leave for Lima, Peru after Easter. Let's keep all of these brothers and sisters in our prayers as they take this bold and adventurous step toward a more Christ-centered life. We're less than two weeks away from our big 25th anniversary celebration. On Wednesday, March 21st at 7 p.m., our whole Grace family from all four campuses is gonna to come together right here at Grace Latham for a night of giving praise and glory to God for everything he's done for Grace Fellowship since 1993. We're also going to look outward and forward to what we can do for the kingdom of God for the next chapter of this story of grace. This is gonna be a very special night, full of joy and thanksgiving. You will not wanna miss it. Mark your calendar and I'll see you there. Two weeks ago, Pastor Rex talked about just how far we've come in the first 12 months of the 2020 Vision Campaign. And just recently, our giving totals for the campaign spilled over that $2 million mark. As you probably know by now, every time we take in $10 for construction projects, we put the next dollar aside for humanitarian aid work. One of the organizations we're working with is Unity House in Troy. Just recently, we got a letter from the CEO of Unity House that says this, Thank you for your generous support from 2020. Your generosity, along with some amazing hearts and hands, help ensure that we can reach people. Help them stay in their homes, feed their families, rely on safe and dependable childcare, and find and keep employment. Thank you again for Grace's commitment to safety and dignity for people in need. It's good to know that along with the ministry tools 2020 Vision is providing, we're also building relationships in our community and showing the love of Christ to our neighbors. Keep up the great work, everyone. And as always, if you'd like to know more about the 2020 Vision campaign, just visit gracefellowship.com slash 2020vision. Right on. That's some great information. And I want to add uh, my word of encouragement to you about what we're calling G25. It's a, a celebration, really, of 25 years of grace. Now, I'd love for you to mark this on your calendar because I would like to see Grace Latham Sanctuary jammed out for this incredible evening together. It's going to be March the 21st. Why then? Why a Wednesday evening sort of in the middle of the month. Well, that happens to be the exact birthday of Grace Fellowship. So I think it's kind of cool that it fell in midweek time, and that's when we're going to come together, just one service, and uh, we're going to celebrate not only what God has done, but we're mostly going to look forward to what He will do, because we believe that the past is just prologue, and that it's just a setup for all that God is doing and is about to do uh, through this amazing church that he's building. So come uh, be with us. Spend that evening together. There's going to be cake. There's going to be refreshments. I mean, Debbie and I are looking forward to seeing you there. 
March the 21st as we look outward and forward to what God is going to do. So please mark that on your calendar, 7 p.m., and plan to be there with us that evening. Thank you to all of you who prayed for us as Debbie and I were uh, away in Charlotte, North Carolina last weekend, uh, particularly for the funeral of Billy Graham on March the 2nd. Now, you know, uh, I would love to spend an entire service talking about that, but I'm going to say a few words, but I'm mostly going to point you to a significant message that I did for our staff when I returned. Uh, I shared some reflections on that and talked about lessons we can learn from the life of Billy Graham, a life that represented Jesus well. And so uh, that is currently on our website. In fact, I clicked there a couple of times this afternoon just to be sure myself. And uh, you can just find that where it talks about Pastor Rex remembers Billy Graham. And so please, I encourage you, quite honestly, that's more important to me than that you listen today. So if you just want to get up right now and leave, that's fine. And you can just check out of this message. I'd rather you go to the website Seriously, and listen to that message. It is more important, honestly, even than what I may say today. I really want you to go there. But just a few quick words about the funeral. Uh, We arrived four and a half hours early. The place was swimming with secret service, as you can imagine, because of the president's uh, uh, presence there, along with uh, First Lady Melania, President Mike Pence and Karen were there, the governor of North Carolina along with all of these other leaders from around the world. So Debbie and I said, look, uh, it opens at 7. The funeral's not until 12 noon. We might as well go early. Let's just take it in. But the interesting thing was you couldn't take a bunch of technology with you. You could only take your phone, pretty much. And so Debbie's Kindle was actually rejected as she was going to take that to possibly read a little. So I walked it back to the car. And we met at Samaritan's Purse Processing Center some miles away, and we were all shuttled to the Billy Graham Library where a gigantic canvas cathedral was erected that seated roughly 2,300 people. It was just an amazing time. But what do you do in four and a half hours when you really don't have anything to read much? And what are you going to do? They're not entertaining you with videos on screens or anything. So... You talk with each other. That's kind of cool in this day and age. And so if Christians have celebrities, they were all there, let me tell you. So you'd walk around, well, there's Dr. Charles Stanley. Well, there's Rick Warren. There's Lee Strobel. You know, there's John Ortberg. Oh, my goodness. There's Beth Moore, the women's Bible teacher. Uh, There's Dr. James Dobson right there. There's Dan Busby, the president of the ECFA. All of these presidents of seminaries and colleges and universities. I talked with one pastor from Nigeria whose church is a mere 80,000. Can you believe how paltry that is? And then there was a guy from India with a church of over 200,000 there. And so just these leaders that you would all recognize as well as artists, Christian artists, There was Sandy Patty and Larnell Harris and Steve Green and Evie Turnquist, people who used to be on the platforms of Billy Graham Crusades in the 70s and 80s, and then so many of the younger artists as well who were on those platforms for both Billy and Franklin 
later. And there was Michael W. Smith, and there was Bill Gaither and the Gaither Vocal Band, and Linda McCrary, and team members from the Tommy Coombs Band. It was just kind of a who's who of people that, if you've read many Christian books or been to many Christian events, they were there. Uh, It was just incredible. Probably the longest talk I had was with a guy I'd never met named John Ankerberg, who I found out has had an apologetic show for 38 years on TV, uh, defending the Christian faith, and he's still going uh, strong. So it's just an amazing thing. Debbie and I had a crack-up moment at one thing. You know, I had a revelation at this funeral. I didn't know there were nice porta-potties in this world. (laughs) I didn't know that, but I had a revelation. When I think porta-potty, I think stinky, dirty, Gross. Are you with me on this? Okay. That's what I think of when I think porta potty. But no, there are nice porta potties. So we need to change our thinking on this. There were porta potties there that look basically like a house. They've got wooden floors, individual stalls, lots of privacy, nice sinks, mirrors that are wonderful. I mean, and very pleasant smells, okay? And Debbie was cracking up because she said as she was coming out of one of the women's stalls, there was Beth Moore, and she held the door for Beth as Beth went into the stall she'd just been into. It doesn't get any better than that. Bonding with Beth in the porta potty. So uh, there were lots of cool memories. There was lots of kind of reconnections with old colleagues in ministry that I had worked with years ago. Trust me, folks, it was a moment in time that we will never forget. We're so thankful that we could be there. We're so grateful to God and to the Billy Graham team for just the ability to go back and have those hours together to recall and remember and celebrate a life that was very well lived, honestly, and lived for the glory of of God, but I urge you, please, because there are lessons we can learn, please go to our website and listen to that message that I did remembering Pastor Rex remembers Billy Graham. Well, let me ask you today do you ever have doubts about your faith? Whether you're brand new in this journey or maybe been a Christ follower a long time, do you ever struggle with belief? Most Christians I know, sooner or later, go through a season where they struggle with doubt. It doesn't mean that they've become a cynic or that they've fallen into egregious sin. It's just one of those things that happens, really. So how about you? Have you ever stared out into the darkness of the night and wondered if God's really there? And if so... Does God really care? Does he really care about you and what you're going through? I think doubts about God and his love are more common, they're more common than we realize. So today, we come to a section in Luke chapter 7 where we're going to learn about the cousin of Jesus Christ. His name commonly is John the Baptist. He gets that dubbing of Baptist because he was a baptizer. He preached repentance from sin, and he called people to live out their faith in God in very practical ways. And so we often refer to him as John the Baptist. He's the one who would immerse people in the Jordan River. 
So let's take a look at his story, and you may be amazed to see that someone even as great as John went through a season where he questioned things. And I want us to approach this with a number of questions ourselves, okay? So here we go. Let's go along. Where does doubt come from is the first question I have. Now, some of you may immediately say, well, pastor, it's from the devil. It was the devil who made John doubt. Well, maybe. But I believe that most doubt is rooted in some kind of personal experience. So let me begin reading today in Luke 7, verse 18. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? You would never expect, honestly, to hear that from John's lips, for him to kind of doubt the identity of Christ. Here's why. Because he knew him well. He was the very one who had boldly declared, as recorded in John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He had later said that he was not even worthy to loosen his sandals. And yet here, a little bit later in life, as events have unfolded, here he is experiencing doubt. Now, what are some of the common causes of doubt? I believe that one of them is disillusioning experiences in life. Think about John's situation. Most everyone who looked for the Messiah to come expected him to be a political Messiah who would release the people of Israel from Rome's oppressive yoke. But God had never spelled that out. God had never clearly revealed exactly the nature of Messiah's kingdom in all of its facets or the type of kingdom he would establish. And so people sometimes come up with wrong assumptions and false conclusions. They may read in the Bible, well, God wants to prosper you. And they assume, well, boy, there must be no God because, boy, I'm sure not prospering financially. And they wrongly assume that the only way a person can prosper is in regard to money. And so they come up with these wrong assumptions about God. John the Baptist had some false assumptions too about the nature of Jesus' kingdom and his ministry. John had mostly announced judgment to come, but I think he was a little confused that Jesus came along and most, mostly, mostly talked about love and, and mercy in addition to judgment. John had promised that the kingdom of God was at hand, but now he, he wasn't seeing many signs of it being close by. And he was perplexed that many of these Old Testament prophets had said things, and he seemed to be scratching his head now. If Jesus is really the Messiah, shouldn't he be protecting John from unjust rulers like Herod? Can I say to you, when your expectations for the Christian life don't pan out the way you expected, you can be disillusioned too and have doubts. That's why I'm always so concerned, by the way, that when a person first comes to faith, that they get some solid, balanced teaching. 
because there's a lot of imbalance teaching out there where you may start expecting certain things in the Christian walk that God never promised, and then later you end up disillusioned. Be careful. Be careful. But I think another thing that can precipitate doubt is personal adversity. That too can create doubts about God. Does God even exist? And if he does, does he love me? I'll never forget the story. It was almost humorous if it weren't so sad. About three years ago, on a Tuesday, 32-year-old Daniel Granger had a bad day. True story. He blew a tire out and hit the guardrail on the Patroon Island Bridge. Then he got out of his car and attempting to avoid the traffic on the bridge, he slipped and fell 50 feet, that's a long way to fall, into a snowbank. A construction worker saw Granger fall. He called uh, for help. In the meantime, Granger got up little banged up, he started walking back up the embankment, back onto the bridge, and he was hit by a tractor trailer going 25 miles an hour. Now, folks, that's a bad day. Have you ever been there? And sometimes you have experiences like this and you wonder, wow, how would God allow this to happen to me if he exists? John must have felt a bit like that. From Matthew 11 and Luke 3, we understand that John is in a prison cell. <coughs> He's lonely. He's afraid. His death is imminent. He's having this, these doubts. You see, faith, listen, listen close. Faith does not always flourish through adversity. Sometimes faith wilts in the midst of adversity. And maybe John remembers Isaiah's prophecy, prophecy which predicted that the Messiah would come and set the captives free. And perhaps he was thinking, hey, dude, remember me? You come to set captives free. How about starting right here? I need to be free. How about proving you're the Messiah by setting me free? Years ago, the Russian cosmonaut, an atheist named Yuri Gagarin, returned from outer space and he said, I've been to outer space and I did not see God. Crusty Baptist preacher, W.A. Criswell said, if he'd have stepped out of that space capsule, he would have seen God. I'll tell you that right now. But John can't step out of his prison cell. He can't get out of the dilemma he's in. And so his adversity is causing him to doubt God. What about you? Has that ever happened to you? Maybe you started on a journey with the Lord and maybe you run into some health problems. What did that do to your faith? And maybe you even prayed or you had friends pray for you and boy, it just didn't change. You can't really see God's intervention or maybe your finances turn really sour. How do you respond to things like that? When relationships go badly in your family and your faith is questioned, maybe even your attacked and ridiculed because of your faith. How do you navigate that? You see, Christianity is not for wimps, folks. And faith does not always flourish in the midst of adversity. More often, doubt starts to creep its way in to the life of a believer. There's not a whole lot you can say when people go through hard times. 
There are some things you can say that are true and genuine, like God hurts with you. That's true. God knows what it's like to experience loss and pain, even to have his very son put to death on a cross. His shoulders are strong. He can handle your questions. So take your questions to God is good advice. He can handle your doubt. He can handle your questions. Don't you think God would rather have you be honest with him about your doubts than to profess a phony faith? He knows what's inside of us anyway, so be honest about your doubts. There's a second question I want to pose today, and that is, where should we go with our doubts? And When it comes to that question, I think John is a pretty good example here for us. John went to the source. He doesn't engage in philosophical debates. He he doesn't sit and sulk. He, He does something proactively to get answers. He went right back to the source. At Billy Graham's funeral, one of the Many, many, many people we saw there, met there. In fact, I I made a list, uh, started making a list on my phone, which I later transferred to paper, of just Christian leaders, celebrities that we either talked to, had conversations with, uh, shook hands with, met, said hi to, interacted with, and so on. And it quickly filled a page of just names, just, just names of people. One of them was Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel was an award-winning journalist for the Chicago Tribune. Now, you may know him for his popular books like The Case for Christ or The Case for Faith or The Case for Easter and a number of others. But most of his life, he was an atheist, just didn't believe in God at all. A great writer, a great intellect, doing well in his career. But he was bent out of shape when his wife became a Christian. He couldn't believe it. And he saw her life changing in positive ways. And so he decided he had to check this out. So he went to her church there in Chicago. He went for two reasons. One, he was a little bit curious. And number two, he mostly went, he said, to poke holes in her faith. He wanted to show that this was just a farce. He wanted to rip it apart and show there was nothing to it. In one of his books, he wrote... While I didn't believe the gospel was true, I was convinced that if it was the truth, it had tremendous implications for my life. So I vowed to check out the Christian faith as a journalist would. I would separate myth from reality and see what remained. I would examine the evidence and see for myself. And then as he began this intense search, he began it with this prayer. Listen to this prayer. He prayed, God, I don't even believe you're there. But if you are, I want to find you. I really do want to know the truth. So if you exist, please show yourself to me. At that moment, he really moved from being an atheist, one who does not believe in God, to being really an agnostic, one who says, well, there may be a God, but we just can't be sure. And he allowed his doubts to lead him to search for answers. And after two years of intensive research, Lee Strobel became a committed follower of Christ. 
He made the courageous choice to study God's word, to check it out for himself, and it led him to truth. Well, that's just like John the Baptist. He goes straight to the source. We read in verse 20. When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? So again, I ask you, where do you go with your doubt? Doubts are real. Doubts are common. Where do you go when you're gripped with this impending sort of doubt and questioning of God and of faith. Thomas Berry tells a story of his friend's wife, Dawn, who had just finished reading the old book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. You ever read that book? Boy, I tell you, you want a book that can really be helpful in understanding marriage between uh, you know, men and women in a marriage relationship and how they tend to differ, this is a great book. It sold millions of copies years ago. Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Hugely popular. And she sighed when she read that book and she said to her husband, you know what? Sometimes women don't want men to fix their problems. Sometimes it's just better if he puts her, his arms around her and tells her that everything will be okay. Well, the next morning, Dawn and her husband went out to their separate cars to go to work. And they both noticed that Dawn had a flat tire on her car. So her husband looked at it, shook his head knowingly, put his arms around her, said everything will be okay, and then he took off for work. (laughs) Sometimes you want more than empathy. Sometimes... You want a solution. And John the Baptist said, I want a solution to this conundrum. I want answers. And he went to Christ. I say to you today, if you're an explorer, if you're filled maybe with doubts or questions, whatever level they are, you're in a good place. In fact, I would say to you that if you crack open a Bible And pray a prayer similar to what Lee Strobel prayed. God, I I don't even know if you're there or not. But if you are, I want to know you. Would you reveal yourself to me? I believe that God has a way of powerfully revealing himself through his word, the Bible. Scripture says that faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. You've got to settle the issue, friend. Who is Jesus? Is he really the Messiah? Is he really the anointed one of God? Or is he just a human teacher? And once you settle that, it'll make all the difference in the world. But there's a third question I want to pose today. And that is, how does the Lord feel about our doubts? Well, in answering that, let me ask you, how do you feel when you feel doubted by someone? Maybe clients question your credentials or family members question you about the intensity of your faith. (coughs) Or maybe your integrity gets questioned by someone or your intent. Do you wilt? Do you retaliate? Do you get mad and sulk? Notice that Jesus is compassionate to John here even when John is in this season of doubt. 
when these inquirers come from John, they say, hey, he wants to know, are you the one or should we look for somebody else? Jesus doesn't embarrass John or malign him or ridicule him and say, you go back and tell that John, I'm so disappointed in him. No, nothing like that. In fact, verse 21 reads, at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. Think about it. It's as though the question has come. Jesus doesn't even answer answer the questioners directly yet. Instead, he goes and starts healing people right in front of them. And then verse 22 says, so he replied to the messengers, go back. And report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is preached to the poor. And then he says, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't give them a lecture in epistemology and how we can know things. He doesn't lecture them in the arcane points of prophecy or theology. He just says, watch. He changes lives. And then he says, now you go back and tell John what you've seen and heard. That ought to be enough. And he's establishing, look, no, my kingdom is not political. It is a kingdom of spiritual power. And he knew that John needed that confirmation. Verse 24 reads, after John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. I think Jesus wants to be sure that These messengers don't change their mind about John just because he's navigating some doubt and under tremendous adversity. Now, friends, here's what I've noticed through many years of ministry and dealing with people who are all over the spectrum of faith. Some right at the beginning, barely getting started, maybe just exploring. Others who have been Christians a long time. There are two types of doubters. The first type is dishonest doubters. Hear me today, they don't want to believe. They really don't. It's doubt out of convenience. If I don't believe, I don't have to change my mind. And so they claim not to be finding God for the same reason a criminal doesn't find a police officer. He's not looking for him. It's doubt out of convenience. If I find God, I'll have to change. Men do not reject the Bible because it contradicts itself, but because it contradicts them. It challenges our selfishness and our worldview. And so we try to find loopholes to support our lack of belief. But secondly, just as there are dishonest doubters, there are honest ones. And if you're here today and you're kind of exploring faith, I want to say again, you're in the right place. 
And I really respect people who are on an honest journey. God loves honest explorers. But others have doubts who have been Christians for a long time. Stephen Brown says, if you've never had a question about your faith, then you probably don't have much of a faith. Throughout the Bible, people like Moses and Elijah and the Apostle Paul, Jeremiah and a host of others went through seasons of deep doubt in their journey with God. Remember Thomas the Apostle? Jesus had appeared to the others, but Thomas was absent. Thomas said, I'm not going to believe. No, no. i got to see it with my own eyes. Unless I see those nail prints, unless I see that spear print where the spear went in his side, I will not believe. A week later, Jesus appeared again. And he said, Thomas, here are these nail prints. Thrust your hand into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And remember, Thomas fell to his knees and said, my Lord and my God. So if you're wrapped up in honest doubt, allow yourself to investigate the truth, study the scriptures, keep asking good questions, and I believe God is going to meet you on this journey. Verse 27 reads, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there's no one greater than John, yet the one who's least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Verse 29 goes on, all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purpose for them because they had not been baptized by John. To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. And you say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and you say, Here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. Now, what in the world does that mean? Jesus is saying there's some people who are just not wanting to believe, and you just can't please them no matter what you do. He said, look at the difference between John's approach and mine. John's approach was very austere. He came neither eating nor drinking. And you say, John's got a demon. My approach was very different. I mix it up with unbelievers and egregious sinners. And you dub me a friend of tax collectors. And you guys can't be pleased. You're just not gonna believe. You're gonna do your own thing no matter what. And trust me, friends, there are many people in that category today. But sincere doubters have their hearts and minds honestly open to investigate the evidence. And I want to applaud you if that's you. Alfred Lord Tennyson wrote, There is more faith in honest doubt than in half our creeds. And our attitude toward people who are 
honestly, sincerely doubting ought to be very understanding, compassionate, and merciful. As Jude writes in Jude verse 22, be merciful to those who doubt. Rufus Jones was a Quaker pastor, and he wrote, a rebuilt faith is superior to an inherited faith that has never stood the strain of a great testing storm. If you've never clung to a broken piece off of your old ship in the dark night of your life, your faith may not have the sustaining power to carry you through to the end of the journey. When you're feeling disoriented due to doubt, you remember that observation. As you emerge from your uncertainties, you may very well possess a stronger faith than you did prior to the test. In other words, don't freak out when you doubt. You may emerge stronger in this, in, when the season of doubt is over. Well, as we wrap up today, this may shock some of you, but as we've been remembering Billy Graham over these last couple of weeks or so, does it shock you to know that Billy Graham went through a season of doubt? He was 30 years old. He'd been in ministry already for a number of years, felt the call of God in his life, had already seen some success and effectiveness. But his friend Chuck Tippleton had begun to ask questions. Chuck was beginning to doubt his faith, and he pummeled Graham with questions about the Bible's authority and said, Billy, you're 50 years behind the time. You've got to change your language. You can't go on believing this old story of salvation anymore. And Billy loved Chuck Templeton, appreciated his friendship, but he said, I was torn apart inside. And one night, the age of 30 years old, at a place called Forest Home, it was a retreat conference center just east of Los Angeles. It was a moonlit night. And Billy Graham, in an agony of soul, wondering what he's going to do with all these doubts, knowing he could not go on being president of a college like he was or go on preaching the gospel unless he really believed the scripture. He went out and as he writes it, he put his Bible out on a stump there in the middle of the forest and he knelt down and he said something like this, God, Chuck is raising questions that I don't have answers for and I see all kinds of problems in my own mind with scripture there are some tensions there or what seem to be contradictions there that I can't explain. And there's so many questions I don't have answers for. God, would you show me? And he said before he rose from his knees, he said, God, I will make this commitment to you. I will preach this as your word, the things I do clearly understand. And I will preach the essence of your gospel as your inspired word. Billy Graham's life was never the same after that. He had a new power, a new effectiveness about his life and ministry that was unmistakable because he had made a commitment to the integrity and the infallibility of God's word, the Bible. I hope that God brings you to a moment like that in your life, a watershed moment where you can say, Lord, I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to be a student of your word, and I'm going to hang on to you no matter how strong the adversity may be.
Father, thank you for your amazing love, even when we go through seasons of doubt, and for how Jesus modeled how you feel about people who are honest doubters when he dealt with John the Baptist and these questioners. God, today, for those who are struggling with doubt, whatever the intensity, I pray for your spirit to comfort and guide and lead. And I ask, Lord, that you would make us people of tremendous faith, people who trust in you and your word. Thank you that you are a true friend of the skeptical. In Jesus' name, amen.